My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined once more uh, by writer and campaigner Louise Perry. Uh, she is a columnist at The New Statesman and the author of the new book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. Welcome back, Louise. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. Uh, it's lovely to have you back on. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, the the first time you were on here, we were both heavily pregnant. Yep. <laughs> you slightly... <laughs> More heavily than me, but definitely uh, in a state. Uh, and uh, we spoke about pretty much the subject of the book, but I feel like we are two different people now. Uh, I definitely feel that way. So I wonder, um, how does your new um, situation in life, your new your new state, you know, emerging from the chrysalis of, of maidenhood into motherhood, uh, have changed your perspective on the subject of the book, which is the sexual revolution and its uh, discontents? Mm. Yeah, yeah, such an interesting question. I mean, to some extent, just being pregnant while writing it changed my perspective because particularly when I found out that I was having a boy, because it made me think much more, it made me, it made me have a much more sort of a longer term view on what, what, what kind of society I wanted my son to grow up in um, and made me reflect more on the ways in which men are harmed by the status quo. Because even though that my, my central argument in the book is basically that the popular, popular liberal narrative of the sexual revolution is that it was all to women's benefit and it was all about freeing women. And, you know, and I think that's, um, I think that's that kind of, narrative is nonsense I think that the key beneficiaries of the sexual revolution have been as high status men who are now able to attract partners for no string sex and, and and to basically live a really hedonistic lifestyle without any consequences and I think that the main the main um losers of the sexual revolution have been have been women particularly poor women although obviously it is you know it is it is complex in the same way that any huge historical event always is and everything has everything has trade-offs um but I, I i think in a way that the i'm not even sure that the high status men are winning you know the playboys because i think actually even if there is a short term short term joy to be had in um indulging indulging um every you know whim summoned up by male sexuality in its most unconstrained form, I think that actually the long-term consequences for the Playboys are fairly miserable and fairly pathetic. And actually, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want my son to be Hugh Hefner. You know what I mean? For all that Hugh Hefner in his in his prime was this glamorous figure um, who seemed to enjoy life a great deal, he didn't end. You know, the the, the shelf life for the Playboy is really short. Actually, slightly slightly longer than for. The, the, you know, the, the attractiveness window for women, which is really only about 20 years. But it's still, it, you know, the 60-year-old, the 70-year-old, the 80-year-old playboy is, is, is a really tragic figure. Knowing that I would be the mother of this, our son made me think 
about that in greater detail when I was writing. And then now that I now that I am the mother of a one year old, um, I think yeah the the I I have um eight chapters to the book and the final one is on marriage and making the case for marriage, um, particularly to a a feminist or progressive audience who might consider marriage to be a ridiculous, uh, you know, anachronism. The argument that I build basically starts from the vulnerability of the baby and the incredibly strong link between mother and baby. And I, I see that as just this immovable natural phenomenon that for all of our efforts, we cannot, you know, we cannot get away from. We've, I, I feel like so much of the modern world is geared towards trying to destabilise that link between mother and baby and to make human babies as, as independent as possible, as quickly as possible, whether that be through, you know, putting them in daycare and sending mothers back to the workplace as quickly as possible or... Um, undermining the family in general or you know the extreme end things like the surrogacy industry and actually I feel like if we start with that really important prior which is this bond is is valuable and unbreakable should be unbreakable then actually I don't think you can conclude anything else but that marriage is that, that marriage is fundamental to the flourishing of women and children in particular yeah. And men too. Yeah, that's I think that's an, an an interesting um kind of extrapolation, but it is essentially in a way you're you're making almost like a leap of faith outside of the liberal framework. Like this is mm-hmm. not a liberal argument. It's not essentially mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. it's not expanding autonomy for anyone. It's not mm-hmm. uh you know, so um is is there kind of a, a, a metaphysical dimension to the book? Is there, you know, because essentially you 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 have to step outside of the of the mainstream perspective on things to actually be able to uh, appreciate this argument to its you know full extent. Mm. So, I mean, the book is secular, and my perspective is secular, um, and I'm coming at it as a kind of lapsed liberal um, who still who still writes for a liberal left magazine and so on. So I'm kind of I'm 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 still in that in that token, world to some extent most liberal <laughs> yes yes <laughs> um and I, I know I mean I'm trying to I'm trying to write for multiple audiences whether or not I've achieved that I I mean I I felt at the time of writing that I was constantly trying to balance the knowledge that this would be read by conservatives and progressives um and trying to trying to speak to both audiences is quite challenging what I ended up doing is basically just writing what I thought was true and hoping hoping that both audiences would come along with me um I mean I, in a way what I'm doing is I'm I, I'm starting with some some feminist priors to the extent but I mean the difference being with liberal feminism liberal feminism being all about maximizing women's autonomy I'm not really interested in maximizing anyone's autonomy I'm, max, I'm interested in maximizing human flourishing so if we start with the prior that women's well-being is, is important and needs to be protected and then I kind of, I end up reaching some quite conservative conclusions, but via some secular arguments, if you see what I mean. So I'm hoping what I'm able to do is like show to audiences who are hostile to religious conservatism that actually there are some, there are some norms from the past 
that actually were valuable and should be protected. And that this idea of just maximising everyone's freedom at any cost is actually a very effective way of harming the most vulnerable people in society. Yes. Because none of this is a level playing field. And so I the the a quote that I really like and that I am um, I use several times in the book is by the um socialist historian R.H. Tawney, which is um freedom for the pike is death for the minnow. Mm-hmm. That if you, I mean, particularly thinking about sexual asymmetry, there are, there are all sorts of ways in which people can be vulnerable in society. But for my purposes, sexual asymmetry is impossible to move beyond. Like, however much we might try, we can you, we can present. Um, it's quite easy in the modern world to forget how different men and women are. If you're if you're a member of the laptop class, mm-hmm. you don't use your you don't use your body for your work and human physical strength is basically irrelevant to your life or you don't see it you know because you don't see how your food is produced and you don't see how your energy is produced and whatever so you're basically living this kind of life that is fairly detached from the physical self and you are able to delay reproduction through using contraception um and ever, and you're you know you're working in a knowledge economy where actually women are just are just as capable of participating in that kind of work as men are. It can seem as though the differences between the sexes are trivial. And I, I mean, you, you particularly now as families get smaller, it becomes less common for people to even play fight with their siblings growing up because you're less likely to have siblings. So you might never have discovered just how different men and women are in terms of things like strength differences, and you. If, if you've not experienced motherhood or, or pregnancy, you, it's quite easy to to, to, to trivialise that as well and to think that actually it doesn't, it's something that is only a kind of minor detail <laughs> in the differences between the sexes and basically a ther- theoretical one. Um, but actually sexual asymmetry is profound and it can't be, it, 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 it can't be dismantled except through some incredibly ambitious and dystopian transhumanist efforts which I hope we'll never see um and so the, the I mean some so some of those differences are average differences like differences in strength and size between men and women which is which is really substantial but it's an average one like there are a few outliers some of the differences are absolute only women can get pregnant only only men can do the impregnating and then more most controversially from a from a progressive feminist perspective there are psychological differences as well which are average ones, but which at the population level have a really profound effect. So even though you can't necessarily predict what someone's personality is going to be like, just knowing what their sex is, you you see patterns across the whole population in terms of male and female behaviour and, and psychology, which are really, really important. Um, so most importantly, for my purposes in this book, male and female sexuality is really is on average really very different in that there, there's a trait that psychologists call sociosexuality, which is basically your interest in sexual variety. And the bell curve for, bell curves for men and women are it is roughly a bell curve with a with a long with a long tail for that for that really highly sociosexual. The the bell curves are slight are are different enough that there's a fair amount of overlap. But the long tail of the highly sociosexual is like all men. There are no, there are basically no women on that tail. 
And so the way in which we see this playing out in the real world is that like all sex buyers are male, pretty much. And the vast majority of prostitutes are female because obviously most men are heterosexual. So that's how you'd expect the market to market to express itself. Um, heavy porn users are male. Men use porn in general much more than women do. Um, fetishists are overwhelmingly male. There's one theory that what fetishes are basically is just very high sociosexuality, very high sex drive combined with maybe like peculiar experience during adolescence, which has like encouraged a particular weird sexual interest. It's really rare to see fetishes in women. The only fetish in women that is, the only fetish that you see as often in women or more in women than you do in men is um, uh, masochism. Mm-hmm. Apart from that, it's basically a male phenomenon. So once you've once you've recognized that that there are these that there are these massive average differences between the sex in terms of sexuality, I think it becomes clear that the push towards liberating human sexuality and inviting more social acceptance for things like for things like prostitution and porn and fetishes and all the kind of um, weird and wonderful things that have become mainstream <laughs> within the last 60 years are overwhelmingly to male benefit and very often at the expense of women because obviously for instance you know porn has to be produced using real women who suffer profoundly in the porn industry and as a form of entertainment for men you know so I think that understanding what's happened has just been like a general liberation of everybody is to neglect the fact that you basically have two classes of people here who have quite distinct interests. Yes, and I feel like my fear is that um, the reality of of the inequality here is so profound that um, it's pretty much impossible to square it with kind of egalitarian social norms because this is a, a you know this is kind of the, the the playing field where the sexes interact you know this is mm-hmm. one of the most important dimensions of of our interactions with the opposite sex and if we were to actually accept and integrate all of the differences then it would make for quite a different I, it, you wouldn't really have uh, you know this this laptop class existence you would have to essentially revert to potentially older standards of interaction with people. I mean, what what would uh, a world look like where, you know, to use uh, common parlance now, you know, sex was priced right, especially for women. Like, what 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 is the, the, the right price of sex in terms of, of social standards? Contraception warps this, right? Which is which is, is basically the central, like, plank of my book, that we had, we had the pill arrive in the world about um, 60 years ago. And it's changed everything and it, we haven't really reckoned with this change because yeah it has this the one of the arguments that I make in near the end of the book which um has a tendency to make um my progressive friends jaws drop if I <laughs> if I put it in this way but I think it's absolutely true is it in a world without contraception where sex is very likely to lead to pregnancy no sex before marriage is a feminist proposition mm-hmm. because it is women literally who bear the consequences of any sexual encounter. I mean, so there's, there's the consequences in terms of pregnancy. There's also the consequences in terms of the, just the physical risk of violence, given the difference in the difference in um, stature between men and women. So the way that this often gets framed, right? Looking, if we look at the past and we look at the 
um, intense social pressure on men and women, but inevitably more on women to withhold sex before marriage and the taboo against extramarital sex for women in particular. I mean, the sexual double standard is... The sexual double standard whereby women are socially punished for promiscuity in a way that men are not is, according, I think anthropologists believe it to be a human universal. It is so common in every possible society and it exists still in our society. It might not be quite as, quite as apparent, but there, there are some clever research studies which look at the um, extent to which people still believe in the sexual double standard, even though they won't admit to it. Um, it's been sort of, it's been sort of buried in our psyches, but it's still in there because it's a, it has, it has, it has quite an obvious evolutionary origin, which is that make, make guarding is advantageous for men. It is obviously if you're if you're going to invest in your children, you want to know that they are yours, and the way that you know that they are yours is by being jealous and and protecting or preventing your partner from. Um, having sex with other men. Um, but yeah, the, the way that the premarital sex taboo is understood generally by liberals and by most feminists is as a way of um, men controlling women and trying to restrict women's freedom and suppress women's sexuality, possibly out of fear of female sexuality or just out of a kind of the tyranny of the oppressor class over women and clearly yes the way in which that that taboo is 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 uh, enforced is through control of women it's often you know brutal control of women depending on which culture you're talking about and kind of which what kind of material context they're operating within um but actually the alternative which is that any like any scoundrel can impregnate any woman at any time and have absolutely no um there being no social consequences her being left entirely on her own and it either being up to her to um procure procure an, uh, an abortion in an era without access to safe abortion or commit infanticide or raise the child alone or for somehow the child to be kind of become the responsibility of the community this in an era long before the welfare state or any kind of um, institution that could step in to effectively raise a child. You know, we're not talking about like horrific orphanages of the past. That is so obviously a disastrous outcome for the women and for the children. And what the, what the premarital sex taboo does is it basically constrains male sexuality. It constrains female sexuality too, but more importantly, it constrains male sexuality. Um, and, and doesn't permit men to do what is to some extent instinctive, which is to, to sow their wild oats. Mm. And what happened with the pill and then subsequently with decriminalisation of abortion is that, that 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 risk was removed or to some extent made it visible. I mean, actually, the perverse thing is, right, that the introduction of reliable contraception and legalised abortion has actually led to an explosion in single motherhood, which seems bizarre but actually I think makes perfect sense because what's happened is just that you've you've the the pill was just effective enough it's not that effective it's like typical use is like 91 percent reliability which means 
of 100 women using the pill in a year, nine of them will get pregnant, which is loads. Um, but it was just effective enough to dismantle the social norms that had existed to deal with a world without reliable contraception, in particular the shotgun marriage. And the pill just destroyed the shotgun marriage almost overnight. You can, you, you, you can see, you know, this, this huge drop-off at the end of the 1960s and into the 1970s. And then actually you, but you, you, but you, but the pill is not reliable enough to always prevent an unwanted pregnancy. So you, and not all women are going to want to have an abortion, even if it's available to them. So you actually end up with in, t- in absolute numbers, a lot more, because you've got a lot more extramarital sex, you also end up with a lot more unwanted pregnancies and therefore a lot more unwanted um, not, not unwanted children, but children born outside of wedlock in unplanned, in unplanned conceptions. Um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your question, Alex. No. I've gone off on such a tangent. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's all good. But it, it, it does, it, it's interesting. And I think, um, you know, from, in, in this framework, you could see very well how um, abortion is, is an absolutely necessary kind of complement to, to the pill. Yeah. You know, to, to catch all the, the stragglers that, uh, you know, the, the pill didn't manage to, to, to solve. Um, so it feels also like, a, you know, a completely necessary tool of, of liberating the female. It's just like, uh, yeah, making sure that you, you cover all your bases. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, and I think that that, I think that that's why you see in all the Western countries that have experienced a sexual revolution the way that the UK and US have, you see... Um, the introduction of the pill is created at the beginning of the 1960s and then you see it being available to married women and then some years later it's available to unmarried women and then some years later you have the decriminalisation of abortion and I'm sure that this is because you had so obviously abortion is a very long-standing practice you see in basically all societies there are efforts at procuring abortions and also in particularly pre-Christian societies infanticide is really common so it's you know that there is clearly always it is a is a long-standing human experience right to to the conception of unwanted children um but I think that the reason that you see this um almost simultaneous changing of abortion legislation across the western world in the 60s and 70s is because you suddenly have high status women who are getting pregnant when they don't want to. And I think it is, you know, their fathers in parliament or in Congress or whatever, who are sort of newly motivated to provide safe and legal abortion. Um, Which, you know, I mean, so this is where, I don't know when you're going to release this, Alex, but we're speaking just after the, um, the, um, leaked judgment on Roe in the States and much feverish discussion of abortion and kind of where next in America. And my, I don't, I don't actually write very much about abortion in the book. It's just kind of like a given. This is, this is, this is the situation, you know, what, what has, what have been the consequences the last 60 years of of the fact that um, sex and reproduction are no longer linked. And like my 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 genuine view is that I don't think I think it would be a mistake to ban abortion, um, because I think that 
the social norms that used to exist to control extramarital sex and to reduce the number of unwanted conceptions are like utterly destroyed. And so I think that if you were going to try and seek to return, if, if this is what conservatives want to return to that 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 previous era, I I don't think that criminalizing abortion overnight will do it. I think what's much more likely to happen is like what happened in Romania, where you suddenly have huge numbers of unwanted children and like extremely grisly results. I think that's a risk. Um, I think that it is clearly, I think you can very, even though most feminists don't want to, I think you can make a very like pro-woman argument for the status quo not being good. Like we have about one in four pregnancies ending in abortion in the UK and the US and it's even higher in some other parts of the world. And I I think it's I think it's foolish to pretend that that's a good thing, no matter how no matter whatever you think about the personhood status of the fetus, right? I think that abortion is clearly has physical risks, even if they're underplayed sometimes by the pro-choice movement, regardless of you know the legality of it. And it has very clear emotional consequences. Again, even if they're underplayed, there are lots of women who 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 find having an abortion extremely traumatic. But what we seem to be having to have such high abortion rates is that women are having sex with the wrong men at the wrong time, and I guess without without sufficient contraception. And to my mind, what I think is going on here is basically that 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 the experience that those men are having is like a an abundance of free sex that they can just operate as if as if there is no link between sex and reproduction and it, that and the, the fact that that link does remain even if it's to some extent suppressed and to some extent we have this kind of brittle illusion of sameness between the sexes that we've kind of manufactured through technology that, that is it, it's it's just a that's just the superficial data, right? Like the truth remains that sex very often leads to pregnancy. And you have you have this scenario. I was uh, I've spoken to women, for instance, who had who became pregnant through casual sex and had abortions and never told the fathers of of those of those babies and um, might not even know who they are. And from that, from the from the men's perspective, nothing's happened. Who cares, right? Like this is this is just uh, this is just sex as pleasure, hedonism, whatever, like meaningless leisure activity. But from the perspective of their partners and perspective of um, the um abusers, it is extremely consequential. And I think that yeah, I think that basically the whole the whole sexual liberation narrative is really built on a very fragile um, and like technologically constructed lie, um, which suggests that men and women are the same and that sex doesn't have consequences. And neither of those things are true. Yes. And I, I feel like, you know, it's, you know, I'm personally not pro-abortion, but I can see, you know, there's uh, the complexity of it is startling and, um, the problem, like you said, it is downstream of, of so much else that is wrong. Um, do you see any sort of um, potential 
for changing norms at the top uh, because I do think this type of stuff trickles down. Do you think, you know, slut shaming will be trendy in the, the higher echelons ever again or will there be a different type of, uh, of, of sea change? I think it's quite likely, yeah. Um, our, um, I think our mutual friend Catherine D has been predicting for some time that there's going to be a backlash, like an intra-elite backlash to... Um, sexual liberation and sex-positive feminism in particular. Um, and you can see it brewing on social media, for instance, and among a lot of trans Z women who've been really burned by um, burned by casual sex and BDSM and sort of all of the, um, the fruits of sexual liberation. And, and I think that a lot of those women are starting to wake up. Um, I think that actually that could change quite quickly. I think that could spin on a sixpence because part of the reason I think that um, some young women, that it, part of the, I think the reason it has become common to see young women boasting about their kind of sexually liberated behavior. Um, you see, for instance, um, like teenage girls on TikTok boasting about their body counts and sharing like photos of themselves having had rough sex with their boyfriends and their injuries and stuff like that. It's like really bleak. Um, I think that to some extent they, they don't understand male sexuality. There's like a mutual miscomprehension between the sexes because we've, because in recent decades we've worked so hard to suggest that men and women are actually the same, except for a few like superficial socialized differences that you can unsocialize. Um, so, for instance, I don't, a lot of young women in particular have not learned because they've not been told and because it's not necessarily obvious initially to them that, like, men will shag anything that moves, basically. That being able to attract sexual attention from men is not, um, is not necessarily a demonstration of you being super attractive. It's, it, that, um, I, I have a kind of, uh, mental folder in my head of like no, local news stories about various inanimate objects that men have been arrested for having sex with in public like men having sex with bikes men having sex with piles of leaves etc you know it is it is not difficult it's not difficult oh yes right <laughs> i don't know which bit of the bike but you know, the, it's not difficult to attract casual sex if you're a woman, if you're a living and breathing woman, right? And any woman who's been on on Tinder or any other dating app will know that you don't get inundated with marriage proposals, right? You get inundated with offers of casual sex. Yeah, I mean, offers <laughs> Sorry, of Alex. dating. That's the thing. Yes. This, is very, this very ambiguous thing of what exactly is going to happen. And I feel like, you know, after a while, you realize exactly what's going to happen. It's not dating in any sort of uh, old, old school context. It's dating in the new school context, which is essentially casual sex. I think that similarly with things like um, BDSM, I think that there's a, there's an, like, so things like choking have become very, very voguish among young people. And you can see this in terms of the proportion of uh, different age groups who have experienced certain kind of like pornified rough sex acts, like choking. It's a massive spike among millennials and younger compared with the older age groups. And um, so to some extent, this is like a porn fashion that has been not not entirely generated by the porn industry but has been amplified by the porn industry it's become much more mainstream you 
a generation ago, this was like a niche BDSM practice, and now it's on the front page of the major porn platforms. Um, so to some extent, it's just a, a fashion that's been generated by the internet. But I think that it's building on a much, um, it's kind of an elaboration on a theme, which is much more deep set in human sexuality. Um, and I think what the reason that so many women are turned on by choking, not all, but some, is because they interpret it as a sign of passion and being like desperately wanted by their partner. Like he he like wants me so much, he'll do anything to have me kind of thing, which is a very common theme in romantic fiction intended for women. Um, the problem is that, so, you know, young women will interpret their, the throttling marks on their neck left by their partners as like a sign of passion, a sign of being really desirable, a sign of being really high status. But actually that's not generally how the men perceive it at all. Like a man can happily choke his partner and have absolutely no respect for her and absolutely no like intention to call the next day. Um, and I, I think that if young women could be like shown the reality tough as it is it's not a nice reality but if they if, if they could become sort of more clued up about the dark side of male sexuality I think that that um that status attached to being the sexually liberated woman would 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 crumble like immediately because it would become clear that it's actually not it's actually not linked to more genuine sources of high status like being like being beautiful like being desired um so that definitely could change and I think that we probably are seeing that already and there probably will be a kind of, um, in the same way that sex positive feminism is an elite phenomenon, I think that we probably see the backlash as an elite phenomenon as well. And so we might see some trickle down on that on that basis. But the, I think what's less likely to change is the, the more widespread consequences of sexual revolution, because I think that those those consequences come from material change to do with the primarily to do with the ability to control reproduction because of, because of reliable contraception, which has only actually become more reliable with time um, because we have things like the long-acting reversibles now, um, but also changes to the economy, which aren't likely to go away anytime soon. The fact that male physical strength has just so much less value now than it did in the past. The fact that the kind of work that we do um, in not just in the laptop class, but you know, in call centers, in you know, all, all sorts of parts of the service economy, whatever, is basically degendered. Um, the, those kind of that kind of um, like natural sex segregation on the basis of physical capacity to do work is pretty much gone in the West, and I think that that the, like these are the kind of material things which are which are producing our current reality. And I, I, I don't see them changing. Yeah. I might be wrong. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree with that. And I feel like it, it, it kind of ties into the previous point about, you know, BDSM being very, um, yeah, ascendant or, or popular. Um, it's, it is interesting because I feel like a, a lot of the, uh, the drive, like you said, you know, the only kind of paraphilia that women have is, you know, masochism. They, they want mm -hmm. to be dominated. It's, it's also a consequence of this, this kind of like almost materially based depolarization that we've seen where, you know, we are essentially trying to live, uh, you know, human sexuality within egalitarian norms, which is going to be 
pretty hard uh, and it's going to be pretty hard to have that, you know, dominant feel. Um, mm. And then the issue that you have is that most men, I would say most men that I know are not necessarily into BDSM. And then you kind of have mm. this adverse selection of people who already kind of have predatory tendencies. Like if, if a guy is yeah. really into choking, he's probably more of a like, you know, uh, fringe of the bell curve, you know, like right. a, a long yeah. tail of a person who enjoys aggression towards women. Yeah, um, and probably has some dark triad traits. Exactly. Plus, mm. I mean, sorry to admit this, but <laughs> women also probably as a proxy for dominance do tend to gravitate towards dark triad traits, you know, the whole yeah. bad boy thing. Um, yeah, so uh, it's 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 quite uh, quite the conundrum, especially for women who, you know, you know, it's just not something that your average guy is going to want to do. And a lot of them essentially, you know, that, that I've talked to, they're just like, I can't believe that women ask for this. Because that's the thing. A lot of women ask, you know, mm-hmm. slap me, choke me, do the stuff. They're like, not me. But there's a guy around the corner who'll do it. And he's probably a little bit of a psychopath. So, yeah, it's it's, it's yeah. dangerous. Yeah, I have a, a bit in the book where I talk about, um, like, sex advice columns written by liberal feminists. And they're... Um, appalling advice that they offer <laughs> to their correspondents. Yeah, yeah. How to get killed. Um, yeah, basically, <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, like one of the ones I quote, um, is a woman who writes in saying that she has these fantasies about, um, she's recently come out of a long-term relationship and she's always had fantasies about like um, being choked or whatever, having rough sex with with men. Like how does, how, how does she find these men? And <laughs> yes, I know. And the advice is to basically go on like, go on the internet and advertise it <clears throat> and just like you know show up at this guy's house you don't know from Adam and like literally select him for sexual aggression and then like good luck baby <laughs> being, being liberated it's like the most it is almost psychopathic in in its in its stupidity that advising advising a woman to do that and yet this is advice apparently um, followed by women and delivered by women. And I, and, I, and I think it must be coming from, I say it's partly coming from liberal ideology, this idea that you, sh- you should be able to do anything you want. And sort of, if, if only we just keep, if only we just keep kind of plugging away at making it so that women can do whatever they want and, and, and never victim blame, never kind of, um, prescribe any kind of limits then it will sort of magically appear somehow like a kind of fake it till you make it ideology which which actually in practice just involves kind of like throwing women's bodies at this like edifice of patriarchy and expecting it to crumble and it is it 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 shows (laughs) only gets stronger like (laughs) yeah absolutely no signs of doing so um but then I think it also comes from just a widespread naivety about the dark side of male sexuality which 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 can't which comes I suppose from this pretense that men and female sexuality is the same um and I, and I suppose from the fact that actually if you don't if you don't have any direct experience of it and if you haven't sought out information and if you haven't been told if you're some you know 18 year old girl who has who's been like reading her Mills and Boone and maybe watching choking porn. Why would you know that this is an incredibly stupid thing to do? So this is, I mean, this is part of my reason for writing the book is just to sort of have someone say it (laughs) because 
I think in practice, a lot of, I think in practice, many, many feminist women are telling their daughters this and are like privately advising friends to, to take precautions and so on. But it's very difficult politically to say that because it's, because it, it sounds so much like victim blaming and trying to, um, you know, constrain women's behaviour in a way that seems archaic and oppressive. But also, like, the reality is that we are, we're smaller than men, we're weaker than men, and we, and we bear the consequences of a sexual encounter that goes wrong in terms of pregnancy. Um, of course, you can't just behave as if that weren't the case and hope and hope for the best. I mean, occasionally, occasionally it might be fine. It might mostly be fine. But like there comes a point at which you've had so many risky sexual encounters that it becomes almost inevitable that one of them will, will result in a really bad outcome. Yeah, it seems like, uh, you know, do, do as thou wilt uh, is kind of the, the prime directive of, uh, of liberalism and liberal feminism. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just the feminist iteration of liberalism. And it's just the same thing. It's just, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you, you write somewhere, I think it was a, a cultural death grip syndrome, like just kind of the, <laughs> the, the oversaturation yes. with sexuality. Do you think that that's also part of the kind of the, the ratchet, the fact that, you know, you just need more of whatever stimulus to, to get off? At one point I thought about calling the book Death Grip and my editor was like, absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> it's a horrendous title. Um, yeah, so Death Grip Syndrome, for, for those um, lucky enough not to know what it is, <laughs> is, um, is is like a quasi-medical term for when um, a man in particular, but it doesn't have to be a man, has um, like masturbated so furiously that his like physical sensation is deadened and he becomes impotent is normally associated with porn addiction um i mean on that topic i mean it's amazing the degree to which erectile dysfunction rates have gone through the roof in recent decades i i some some uh, statistics i think i quote in the book are that about in the early 2000s it was like um two or three percent of men under 40 suffered from any kind of erectile dysfunction and now it's about a third in 20 years mm. and like that might to some extent be to do with um um feminizing hormones in the environment some people think that that's what it is it might be but anecdotally there are so many examples of men who find that quitting porn solves their erectile dysfunction that that suggests that there must be some there must be some link there um but um yeah death grip syndrome so my the argument that I, so yeah, so the, the paradox of death victims in right is basically having, indulging in so much sexual stimulation that you actually become impotent, you can't have sex with a real person. And I think that cultural death victims in Rome, as I describe it, is kind of the same thing, but on the cultural, cultural scale. So we have incredibly sexualized public life. Like where there's like almost nothing that's off limits. I like to the point where now, um, things like full frontal nudity on screen has just gone from being like really racy, what, like 20 years ago. I find it really, I find it really revealing to look back at things that were controversial at the time, not even that long ago. Like there was the famous Wonder Bra ads in the UK, possibly in other countries as well, um, which showed um, a model like looking down at her 
at her like boosted bra um and they supposedly caused car crashes at the time because motorists were so distracted by this beautiful cleavage and it was like a whole it was like a whole cultural phenomenon and this was like in the like late 90s it wasn't that long ago and now the idea of seeing like a model in lingerie on the street you wouldn't even notice i i made a point at one point of going out and like like taking note of every example of hypersexualized imagery on the street and there's so much of it your eye glazes over because it's so normalized doesn't mean anything which means of course that advertisers and tv and film writers and whatever are having to like constantly ramp it up because the point of this stuff is to be attention grabbing and if it isn't attention grabbing anymore then you have to then you have to like just keep going um there was this uh there was this ad campaign in the UK recently that was paid for by um I think it was paid for by Relate which is like a um relationship counseling charity slash service and it showed um uh like elderly couples on, on in like embracing or like semi-naked or whatever it wasn't super explicit but it was it was intended to be a bit shocking because it was intended to be like oh people have sex too um you know like breaking this taboo and and the and the and the line the strap line they used was all, I can't remember exactly what it was but it was all about like um you know breaking down this like final frontier and accepting that 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 elderly people are, have 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 sexuality too and I, was, and I thought what is the point of this ad campaign because actually we know that what it, what it seemed to be was a bunch of millennials assuming that the, the kind of unrestrained public displays of sexuality and the complete loss of boundaries that our generation and younger are, have become inured to should be imitated by older generations. And these poor, you know, the the the... the, the the polling that they used to justify this campaign was around like, oh, you know, X percent of over 80s, like, think that you shouldn't talk publicly about sex. X percent of over 70s, I know. And I was like, have you considered the possibility that they're right? And actually that this generation who were able to, who don't have like a third of men being um, literally impotent might actually have it might actually have, have like the right idea about this. And it might not be a good idea to just like, leave absolutely nothing private um and I mean I don't know where I don't know where they can go from here really I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it becomes routine soon to have like say erect penises on tv just like like mainstream tv I think this is already that's that's still like kind of a taboo like you will sometimes have non-erect penises but I believe that in the new um what's it called euphoria you, have you seen it? That, that I've, like I've heard about series. it. I've heard a lot of talk about it. No, I haven't seen it. No, I haven't seen it either. I can't quite bring myself to, but it seems um, they're like doing their absolute best to push the boundaries even further than they are already, and they include lots of um, erect penises. So I guess this is this is where we're headed. And around supposedly like sixteen-year-old kids, they're, they're played by adults, but the whole point of the show is that they're underage. Um, I, yeah. I, I, if, if anything was kind of going to um, vindicate the, the, the groomer analysis <laughs> put forward by like lips of TikTok, then Euphoria is it. Um, but the, the thing that's kind of paradoxical about this is that you have this explosion of sexuality in public spaces and you have this complete erosion of boundaries and the idea that, you know, 
the, the privacy is the enemy and you have to like be public about everything all the time. But then you also have the sex recession, which is now so like long-standing that it's really a sex depression. You have uh, young people in particular, but everyone having having a lot less actual sex. Um, and you have more and more young people remaining virgins into their 20s, um, living at home, not getting married, not having any kind of romantic relationships until much later. Um, so on the one hand, you've got like hypersexuality as an as a like a sensible cultural mood, but then actually you have this widespread impotence, um, which seems to me like a very unhealthy combination, which I call cultural death syndrome. Yeah, I think it's a it's a, it's a wonderful mm. metaphor. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's 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 also kind of downstream of um of something that also you touch on in this book is kind of um you know the the idea of the the, the myth of progress uh and mm-hmm. the idea that you know more of everything is better um and you know we're obviously um more abundance in terms of I know products and services sounds you know completely good on its face but uh, at at this point we've we've reached the kind of this dematerialized economy where more essentially is more content it comes mm-hmm. to you um, and it's extremely stimulating. Um, and, you know, I think porn is just kind of the the, the tip of the iceberg there. Mm-hmm. But you have all of this kind of self-generated social media, you know, A-B tested buttons and reality shows and everything that's just there to just hook you in limbically. And it wouldn't mm-hmm. surprise me if um, a lot of this kind of disengagement from reality because you know not wanting to have sex or not pursuing it to the ends of the earth like i, I don't know at least i remember doing it in, in my teenage years in some form uh is 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 inhuman in a way uh but now mm-hmm. it's it's pretty much the norm so do you think that ties into it the fact that we're just kind of you know almost slowly plugging into this stream of of content coming towards us the sex pod yeah, yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, but you, you, yeah, you use the word limbically. I mean, it's a, um, limbic capitalism, which I think is coined by David Courtright, the historian, um, I think describes this perfectly. I think that porn is just the most, the clearest example of limbic capitalism in action. Um, but it's not unique by any means. Like it's just one, it's just one component of a, of a panoply of, of services, um, like distraction entertainment services. You can have beamed into your eyeballs in anywhere with a Wi-Fi connection. Um, and the reason that it seemed, the reason that death grip syndrome results from excessive porn use is that porn is a, a super stimuli, right? It doesn't, um, it takes the things that we know are stimulate arousal and like ramps them up as much as it possibly can. Um, and actually the porn industry is really clever about this, the way that they design um the platforms for instance where you log on and you instantly see the thumbnails of videos which show the most explicit bit and sometimes as well have sound as well so like you hover a cursor over a video then you get bombarded with the sound um is beautifully designed to to like stimulate arousal in viewers um and the interesting thing about this as well is that we know that um, sexual arousal suppresses the disgust reflex because in order to have sex with someone you have to get close to them and normally we have an aversion 
to getting close to other people that we don't know because obviously there's potentially disease vectors so like disgust is our the reason that you really don't like being <clears throat> shoved up into someone's armpit on the tube is because it's not like a great idea in general to um get up close and personal with strangers but sexual arousal disables that reflex and we know as well that the disgust reflex is really closely tied to mora- uh, moral instinct and basically what this means is that people are much worse at making fine-tuned moral decisions when they're aroused, which is basically what the porn sites are designed to do as quickly as possible. So what particularly women who use porn will often describe is like going onto these sites, looking at stuff that they actually know is kind of, uh, you know, are these people really consenting? Um, you, You might have the most like deeply held um convictions about the importance of consent but you're going onto these sites and it's fairly obvious that that's that's not what's going on and it's, it's basically impossible to verify you, you just absolutely cannot know looking at any video that the people in it can, uh, consented at the time or indeed is still consenting to their images being available um but if you're aroused you tend not to it's easy not to think about that but then what people describe is then orgasming and they're like pushing the laptop away in disgust and thinking, oh my God, <laughs> like what have I participated in? But then coming back for more. So you end up with this really like unhappy dysfunctional cycle, um, which doesn't seem to benefit the users very much at all. Um, certainly doesn't benefit the people who are producing the content because we know that they have um, often have really miserable lives and have very high rates of suicide and drug and alcohol abuse and so on and don't necessarily even earn that much money from doing it. Um, the only people that it seems to benefit are the people who own the platforms and profit from them. Um, This uh, below the algorithm and above the algorithm system that we are all increasingly moving into. And when it comes to the porn industry, pretty much everyone is below the algorithm. Because even if you don't actually use porn yourself, your partner doesn't use porn, like the nature of sex is that it is relational. There is a, there is a, there is a culture. You, you, you have to have sex with other people who will be influenced by everything else that's swimming around in the culture and everybody else's preferences and so on. And so, like, you cannot help but be pornified indirectly by the influence of this industry, which I think is really, really pernicious. Yes. What do you make of the kind of the enlightened pornographers? Because there's kind of a, a whole mm. cast of people who say that uh you know it's it's a, a good way to to earn money if you can you know they they have all sorts of kind of philosophical um interpretations of why this is uh at least um harmless i mean mm-hmm. and i think maybe for a handful it is positive mm-hmm. for a while mm-hmm. i don't know i mean it's a it's it's an interesting group not, there are not many people like that to be honest but mm-hmm. there, there's some some are very prominent yeah, like Ayla, for instance, would probably be the most prominent example of like a yeah. um, happy porn star. Although I think that she used to do full service sex work and now doesn't. So she has had some bad experiences in the sex industry. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there probably is like a very um, unusual personality type that finds it okay. Um, if you are really sociosexual, um, if you're a really unusually sociosexual woman, um, and so you, you you actually like do enjoy um, sexual variety, adventure, whatever. And you kind of get lucky and you maybe don't have very strong 
emotional responses from sex. You don't really bond to partners. I mean, I don't think that's a very um, healthy response to sex. Like the natural, for women in particular, the natural but like emotional bonding that comes from sex has an obvious function because like in the pre-contraception era, sex is likely to result in having children. It's obviously good to have like a lasting bond with the your co-parent. Um, but um, if you don't, for whatever reason, I mean, often a consequence of child sexual abuse, but whatever the cause, if you don't have that response, then you might find it okay for a period and you can sometimes make quite good money in general the money is not that good um and what's more common in the like more traditional porn industry is to go into it and initially make quite a lot of money because you're fresh meat and you can the fact of being young and the fact of being inexperienced in porn makes you a more kind of lucrative product but then over time that fades and then you have to start doing more and more extreme stuff that you don't necessarily want to do in order to make money and eventually you, you kind of end up unless you're very lucky and you become a really famous porn star um you you end up pretty much dropping out of porn and just ending up in like normal prostitution or having to do really extreme unpleasant stuff in order to make ends meet so invariably it's not nearly as lucrative as many women who are fresh to the industry hope the same is true of OnlyFans um I mean OnlyFans is not it's not nearly as dangerous as like street or brothel based prostitution it's like it's like by far the sort of tamest end of the sex industry and to some because of what we were talking about earlier with the hypersexualization of public life I mean if you're a teenage girl, 20-something, who's already, like, super sexualised images on your Instagram, say, because you're, like, pursuing that form of status where you can get male attention, not necessarily very lasting or positive male attention, but you can get male attention from um, putting really sexy images of yourself on the internet. If you're already doing that on Instagram, then maybe OnlyFans doesn't feel like that big a jump, and you might feel as though, you know, like, I might as well earn money from this. Um, you hear this sometimes as well from some um, some sex positive feminists who say, you know, if I'm already having sex with men that I don't like or respect and don't like or respect me, um, why? And it's not even necessarily good sex. Like, why would I not charge for it? Because then at least I can get some benefit from it, which is um, a really bleak and nasty way of regarding sex. But you can sort of see the logic. Um, the, the problem with OnlyFans is that the internet is forever. And so if you're putting images out in the world that you don't really have any control over, there's a very good chance that they might come back later to cause you misery, whether that be your boss seeing it or your grandchildren seeing it, whatever it might be. Um, and this is the this is one of the things that worries me a bit as what we talked about earlier with this like backlash to sexual liberation and this maybe um, sexual counter-revolution that we might be starting to experience now. I do I do worry about the women who, um, during the great like OnlyFans festival of 2020 and 2021 during COVID, um, might be really burned by this later down the track. Because at the moment they're responding to the status incentives like within our current framework. But if that changes, then 
yes, slut shaming can make a real comeback. Um, and I don't, I, you know, I, I think these, I feel really sorry for them. And I think that they have been misled by a whole bunch of people. Um, and yeah, the problem with OnlyFans is actually you can sometimes make a lot of money, but it's really, really, really like the Perito distribution is insane on OnlyFans. I think it's 1% of creators generate 33% of the income. And most of those creators are um, pre-existing celebrities before they go on the platform. So the, the story that you, the stories you get circulating on Twitter sometimes, which you, you've got a lot during COVID and I, I cannot help but think that they were, you know, deliberately promoted stories about like often like relatively ordinary looking like pretty but not insanely gorgeous women who go on OnlyFans and suddenly have like bought a first flat or whatever you know just how suspiciously similar all, all the all the houses and flats were they had exactly the same decor um that they had like made it big on OnlyFans and, and then they were like set for life um that's so unusual like so incredibly unusual to the point where you you know you have to wonder if it even it even happens. What's much more common is just to not make very much money, potentially make a loss because you have to actually spend a lot of time creating content, like responding to your subscribers and so on. Um, and the median OnlyFans creator only has 30 subscribers. So it isn't actually like easy money. It's basically like it's just gambling essentially and it's gambling with incredibly high stakes because your images being out in the world can cause you a whole world of pain later in life and I think particularly the thing that that no one really talks about because it's hard to is the impact it has on your long-term relationship prospects what we were talking about earlier with the um um, the fact that sexual double standard is alive and well we know that it's not the thing that's really interesting about male sexuality compared with female sexuality is that women tend to um, have casual, pursue casual partners who have the same characteristics as men that they would want to marry. They, they basically look for the same qualities in men, regardless of like the, the time frame of their relationship. Whereas men don't do that. They kind of have two modes of um, sexual strategy. One is pursuing like wife material um they have very high standards for that and um you know all the things that we would expect as like qualities that make a good wife and mother as well as being sexually attractive um and then they have the like the 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 casual strategy where their standards are much lower and like it's not difficult to attract men by the casual strategy um and sometimes that can give the impression to women that they have this like abundance of interest um but the risk is that say having formerly been an OnlyFans star um not star even just an OnlyFans creator means that long term you're kind of shut out of the of the marriage strategy um yeah, so, and I, I don't think that's necessarily apparent because this is something we just don't really talk about. It's not, you know, like, this is not, this is not something that, like, mothers are telling their daughters or if they are, they're not being listened to. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and, and the way you describe kind of the the porn life cycle, you know, even before you, you mentioned that, you know, sex positive feminists are saying that, you know, I, I'd, I'd rather just make money out of that. You know, it's just, it just describes just being in hookup culture in general, you know, maybe it's more of a, an attenuated form of, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the gravity of the porn life cycle. But, mm-hmm. you know, women might, you know, be in hookup culture for the purposes of, of getting married. And then, you know, they, they go through, you know, being, being fresh meat for a while. And then mm-hmm. they realize that, you know, there's the, the returns are diminishing. And, um, and in the end the, the problem is that it is a kind of a coordination problem. Like, you know, mm-hmm. who are you going to marry? Like, you know, what is the playing field? Who do you meet? Who, who is actually there to, to, to engage with you in, in any of these activities? It's like people who are playing the same game and it's not a game mm. you're going to win uh, either mm. on OnlyFans or in pornography or in hookup culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the only winners from that game really are the high status men who can For a accumulate while, a yeah. lot of casual partners. But yeah, as we were saying, it's time limited. Um, and at the time it might seem like, um, like an absolute ball for these men but I don't I don't I yeah I think long term it probably isn't I think definitely though in the short term the the people who lose out are the women who are being largely exploited and manipulated yeah yeah well um I think you know this is a as as usual an extremely heartening <laughs> note you know <laughs> just a, the crumbling reality of of dating everywhere um but before I let you go I want to ask you the question of our show again uh if you um last time you recommended I think it was Andrea Dworkin which is definitely yeah. one of the spicier recommendations on this channel yes, I don't think anyone else has recommended it <laughs> nope <laughs> um do you have anyone else that has occurred to you that might be interesting to uh, to viewers and listeners yeah I knew this was coming so I did <laughs> I, I I prepped um so it's actually a book I write about quite a lot in my book um called uh, a natural history of rape by um Palmer and Thornhill it's an academic yeah, I've, I've actually read it <laughs> yes hugely <laughs> controversial and kind of yes. memory hold I mean I didn't mm-hmm. know of its existence until I don't know five years ago or something um published in the 90s I can't remember exactly when and uh yeah at the time it was just like insanely controversial like they had yeah. to um they had to check under their cars for bombs in the morning because they were oh, getting so many death threats um I think I think misinterpreted by those people who lost their minds over it. I mean, so the way that it was presented, including by Susan Brown Miller, who's one of the most famous feminists writing on, who, who wrote um, Against Our Will, which is probably the most famous second wave book on rape. They interpreted it. I mean, they just committed the naturalistic fallacy. Like they, they, they thought that Palmer and Thornhill were saying that like aggressive male sexuality is a good thing, whereas it's fairly obvious that they're not. And actually, I mean, it, to some extent, it's because it's a, they write like scientists and I think mm-hmm. they didn't realise quite how much trouble they were getting themselves into. So they, like, it's not as carefully phrased as it maybe should have been to try and avoid this this vibe. I think he would have got it anyway because what they're basically pointing out is that, um, one, rape is not unique to humans. I mean, there's a kind of difficulty in defining it when you're talking about other animals, but this is this is like a sexual strategy that you see throughout the animal kingdom, um, including as well among other primates. And there has like a very obvious adaptive function, which is that in some circumstances, rapists can like um, further their genetic line. 
um, and they they investigate all the evidence to suggest that this is not as the kind of classic um, socialization theory presented by feminists would say a result of men being socialized into being sexually aggressive and it's not it's also not this this line that like rape is about power not about sex it's not true I mean there probably are some situations in which like there's an interplay obviously between power and power and, and sexual violence but um there is so much evidence to suggest that actually what rape is is just like an aggressive expression of sexual desire you see that the peak of victimization peaks exactly with the peak of female um sexual attractiveness and fertility like the proportion of rape victims who are over 30 when they are attacked is like in the single digits as a percentage wise um and the modal age is 15 which is also exactly the the age when you see um you know teen porn and stuff right like this is all this is all like abundantly revealed um and similarly the perpetrators tend to peak around the age of peak male sex drive um the, and that like loads of other pieces of evidence as well to suggest that actually what's going on is like a natural phenomenon which has a fairly obvious cause um what i think is really interesting about the book and the reason why i think actually it is like perversely a feminist text between despite being probably like one of the most hated books by feminists um of the 20th century and 21st centuries is um that like if you accept this which is quite this is just like a depressing thing to accept i mean it's not it's not as depressing as you might think because they do not conclude that all men are like this like hashtag not all men is true um there's like there's a bell curve as with so many other human qualities and you have a, a small number of men who are kind of voraciously sexually aggressive some who are sort of in the middle depending on context and incentives and so on and then you have loads of men who would never dream of being sexually violent so like the, the news is actually quite good in a way um but their recommendations for how you deal with this sexually violent minority like actually useful as opposed to what is commonly trotted out um which is basically to do with like ideological intervention i mean the most the most teach popular, men not to rape teach men not to rape ideally at school um the the most popular um solution to this that's offered generally by feminists kind of feminists of all persuasion but particularly liberal feminists is the is the consent workshop the you know the hallowed like 40 to 60 minutes of the consent workshop it didn't occur to them not to rape anyone no it's just a mistake it's just a mistake uh and if you just do it like as young as possible (laughs) and maybe repeat it periodically um then like that'll sort it out and if the problem persists it's because you didn't like re-educate earnestly enough um i used to teach consent workshops because i used to work in a rape crisis center before i became journalist and uh i can tell you the kids i mean there are some they're not a complete waste of time there are some good things about consent workshops but what they don't do is actually like dissuade rapists um i think it's completely absurd to think that they ever would but there is this yeah is this widespread belief that the problem is just the problem is just a mistake like we are we are actually many women are actually the same like any kind of any kind of darkness any kind of aggression has just been um inculcated into us by the culture and could easily be eradicated and all we have to do is like sit everyone down and explain 
explain the errors of our ways and then we'll, so we'll, we'll be fine. Um, what Palmer and Thornhill prescribe basically is um, more sex segregation in public life. Is, 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 is basically the solution that seems to actually work. So, so things like um, single-sex schools, um, like just things as basic as um, if you have like a summer camp, making sure that the girls' accommodation and the boys' accommodation is at like a distance um, because their view of this is that um, most rape is just a kind of opportunistic thing. It's normally not to do with, uh, like, stranger rape is really quite unusual. Um, these kind of sadistic serial rapists who will go out and target random women at night are really unusual. What's much more common and what, which has almost certainly become, like, they suggest that date rape is probably at the highest in, like, in our current era that it has ever been in human history, just because there's so much, like, unsupervised and often alcohol-soaked interaction between young people of the opposite sex. and the, yeah, like basically that that is a recipe for disaster because you don't, like we know, for instance, alcohol, um, obviously alcohol reduces inhibitions. One of the other things alcohol does for men in particular is it, um, I can't remember the name for it, but there's basically a phenomenon where men tend to overestimate how much women are into them sexually and alcohol exaggerates that effect. So you get loads of young people who, uh, raised on porn, like one, they were writing at the time online porn wasn't really a phenomenon, but now this is even more true. And you give them drugs and alcohol and you leave them alone and like literally what do you expect to happen? Um, and so their advice has got a lot to do with um, basically just limiting those opportunities in a way that, you, and I, I can see how so many feminists at the time really balked at this because it, 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 it like in some ways it is a return to the kind of, control that used to be exerted typically by parents and typically on daughters um but it is in those girls best interests because like the the, the very likely result of running those risks again and again is really devastating yeah. so i think yes yeah, so i think it's like my my unexpected feminist book is a natural history of rape yeah it is it is i mean when if you look at feminism as um you know the, the the movement in to to promote the interests of women. Then yes, yeah, for sure, in, Li- yeah, liberal like feminist definition. Yeah, it is not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I I sometimes people ask like why, given that I diverge from liberal feminism and other form, other forms of feminism too, in such a in so many points. Like, what is the point of me still calling myself feminist? I think that there's I think that there's value in like having that loose definition and actually not seeding the term. Yeah, because yeah. I think it has, it has you know, like there's real meaning to it, which, and and I think like it describes something real, and I think it describes what I'm trying to do, even if I'm coming at it from a very um, unorthodox angle. No, no, I I agree, and and under that uh, definition, I'm probably a feminist too. Um, thank you so much, Louise. This was this was lovely uh, to have you back. Um, I want to point people towards your book. It's not out yet as we record, but it probably will be out. So when when does it come out? So it comes out in uh, in the UK on third of June, twenty twenty two, and then it comes out in September in the states. Oh, nice, excellent. So please do uh, go buy the book. The book is called. The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century by the wonderful Louise Perry. Thank you so much for coming back on.
Thank you so much, Alex. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 